Well, we're continuing our series on Paul, sort of. We're coming through the back door, if you will. You might see what we're talking about when we get through here. I hope you're not tired of hearing about Paul. Maybe you are. Maybe you're ready to to hear something else. But we're going to use that as our springboard today. And and our title is, When the Fullness of Time Had Come, taken from Galatians. And my question is simply this. Have you ever been promised something, and you knew it would come, but you had to wait and wait and wait? Maybe as a trip. We like to go to this place in particular. We like to go hiking. It feeds our soul. Uh, Just a few pictures of the family there. I think I could spend just a little bit of every day right there. And I tell you, there's nothing more exciting for me than to have a trip to look forward to. But it's the waiting game. You have to wait and wait. And you know it's going to come. And eventually, at the fullness of time, of the time that's been set, It does, in fact, come to pass. For many mothers, perhaps it's that long-awaited-for family reunion or gathering, whether it's at Thanksgiving or Christmas or another holiday or just a weekend chosen, but everybody is there. This is us this last weekend. It was this Friday, I think. We opted to go outside. We were up on the parkway. We had a great hike, and Royal came along with us. That's our dog there, and we just had a great time. But for a mother whose kids are spread far and wide, this is another time that you have to wait and wait and wait. And the promises have been made. Yes, we'll be there. And the anticipation grows and you're longing for that time and it goes fast. At the moment, it can seem slow at times, but it goes fast. (laughs) Maybe it's a woodworking project that dad promised to work on with you. This is actually Matthew in his bomber hat. Uh, There's Royal again. It's a, a theme here, I guess in his boots. He's measuring out what he wants to, to make. It's a, a boat out of walnut wood called the Swiss Liner. That's right. We worked on that Swiss Liner this week, but he's been waiting and, and pleading and begging, Daddy, can we work on it today, today, today? Maybe it's a pet that you've longed for and waited a long time for, and it finally came. There's Marianne with that bunny. I promise you it's still living. She can hold that thing in a way that it'll just flop over upside down and ears back and feet up in the air. <clears throat> Won't do that for anybody else, but Marianne can get away with it. Maybe it's the newest cousin or nephew, as it is the case for me, that you've been looking forward to seeing. This is my little sister's little boy, Hamilton, and here's Lauren taking her turn. You want to see the, the ladies squabble, get a new baby out. It's my turn. You just had a turn. You've had them forever. No, I haven't. And for nine months, you wait for the fullness of time to come, for that long-awaited promise of something beautiful that brings joy. And of course, for kids at this time of year, it's that countdown until Christmas, isn't it? When are we going to Nanny and Poppy's house? How many days until Christmas? Do we have to eat supper before we open the gifts? Hopefully you don't do it on the Monday of Christmas or the the morning of Christmas. That's just terrible. It has to be the evening, and we can quibble that later. Do we have to eat supper? Isn't everything ready? Why didn't you wrap this before? When are you going to come out? But then, finally, the long-awaited-for time comes, and at last, the promise is realized. 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul wrote that in Galatians. But what does it mean exactly? When the fullness of time had come. What fullness? According to our time, to God's time, was it random? Was it planned? No, it was certainly planned. Prophecy makes that very clear. Throughout Scripture, we see a plan. We see an intention, an intervention to redeem us and make us heirs of the King. And I can't help but imagine what the angels must have thought, waiting in anticipation for this day to finally come, when the fullness of time would come. And throughout the Old Testament, we have God giving insight into His coming, don't we? And for what purpose? So we could recognize him when he came. And it's in these same prophecies that I believe Paul pointed to time and time and time again to help people understand that this Jesus who he was talking about was not just another man, but was the Son of God. And so if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17, where we're continuing. As you turn there, we'll do a, a quick But quick summary, in reference to Paul's second missionary journey, you might recall it was in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas split over John Mark. And so Paul joins with Silas and they depart. And then it's in Lystra that Paul met up with Timothy, where Acts of the Apostles tells us Timothy witnessed Paul being stoned and thrown out of the city the first time he came on his first missionary journey through Lystra. And it had such an impact on Timothy, even though he had a good upbringing with his mother and with his grandmother. I imagine perhaps at that moment, his religion, he had to decide, is this going to be my own? Am I going to accept this for myself? And so I imagine Timothy, this young adult, continuing to study, feeling called to full-time ministry. And then Paul shows up and asks Timothy to travel with them. And then from there, they traveled on, hoping to go to Galatia, but the Holy Spirit said no. Phrygia, again, the Holy Spirit said no. Then Bithynia, the answer return was no. And then Messiah, and again, the answer was no. Four-door slam, we talked about that before. Somewhere between three to 400 miles that they traveled, but sometimes God says no. He has a different purpose that we don't know and we don't understand. Yet Paul sees a vision of a man telling him to come across the sea. Come over here to Macedonia and help us. And so, in fact, they board a ship and they depart. So, oh, it went too fast. So they sail across the Aegean Sea to uncharted territory, bouncing in and out of cities until they're at Philippi. And there they find people that are open to the gospel. There's a group that is meeting on Sabbath mornings down by the river. There's not even a temple in Philippi, but they're meeting down by the river. Lydia is one of that group, and we are told with further study, her and her household believe and are baptized. And we looked at that as well. And then last time that we spoke of Paul, several weeks ago, while in Philippi, they were continually harassed by this demon-possessed girl, supposed to have the spirit of divination, And so Paul says, in the name of Christ, I command you to leave this girl alone. And this causes quite an uproar in the city. And so as a result, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods and many stripes are laid on them. And then they're placed in the inner prison. And that was the piece that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Under very trying circumstances. But rather than complain, they sing praises to God, don't they? And then at midnight, God delivers 
his people at midnight. The earth shakes, the chains are loose, the jailer's about to do himself in, but Paul and Silas witness to him, they say, wait, don't do that. And as a result, he and his family are baptized. So even in this heathen land, in these newfound places, people are hearing the gospel and being changed. But in today's peace, they're leaving Philippi and traveling through Amphipolis and then to Apollonia and then to Thessalonica up there in the top left corner, if you can see it. It's rather small. And so today we're reading now, picking up this second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17, beginning verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. As his custom was, he came together with them on Sabbath. Long after the resurrection, long after Jesus has, has ascended up into heaven, after any conversation about any change, no, no change, as his custom was. For three Sabbaths, he went in and reasoned from his own experience, maybe in part, what he thought, Maybe in part, but what does it say? From the scriptures. He is showing them, he is proving to them what his beliefs are from the scripture. Continuing on, explaining and demonstrating, verse 3, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's not just an ordinary man. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. There is some success yet again in Thessalonica. Verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious. Envious of what, you suppose? Envious of the fact they were listening to Paul and not to them? Envious of the fact that this message came from somebody else? Envious that somebody had an inside scoop that they didn't have? Envious that they were bypassed? Doesn't fully tell us. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, have mercy, and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Again, Paul faithfully preaches. Again, there is an uproar. Again, the devil is trying to quiet what Paul is sharing. And what is he sharing? From the scriptures. Well, they've always had the scriptures. Why do they need to go over the scriptures yet again? Because there's some prophecies there that you need to pay close attention to. There's some details that you have overlooked. And if we skip down to verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You can read about some of what they do. They They try and make all kinds of drama, and so they decide, okay, Paul and Silas, you need to go. And so this time they traveled to Berea, a little ways away, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things were so. Again, Paul is reasoning, not from his own experience, maybe in part, but it's from the scriptures yet again. He is proving his message from the Bible. That's where the validity lies. And then verse 12, therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So Paul is saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. And in Berea, they search the scriptures how often? Daily. Find out if this guy is legit or not. 
Christ in Greek is Christo, which is equivalent in Hebrew to Messiah. So they're studying the scriptures to see if Jesus was a fulfillment, if Jesus was the Messiah, if Jesus was the one that they were expecting to come as the Messiah, or was he just another man? Have you ever wondered how the wise men knew that Jesus was born and where to find him? I mean, that one's a little easier, but I think it had a lot to do with the fact that they searched the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They were informed by the scriptures, the things concerning the Messiah. Verses like Micah 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel. So where should we be looking? Shall I read it again? Bethlehem. You even pronounced it right. I don't know why you're so nervous. So they were studying these verses like Micah 5, 2. And sure enough, in Matthew 2, 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It, it came to pass. And maybe Paul reasoned some of these things as well. But again, I come back to how did they know when to look in Bethlehem? Did they just hang out there all the time? How did they know that in 4 BC, they should be searching for a savior in Bethlehem, that is Christ the Lord? I imagine there were other prophecies that they studied. Do you remember the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel chapter 8? We read it there in verse 14. For 2,300 days in the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And I don't want to take all morning trying to unpack this 2300 days. We do have study guides and lessons. We preach sermons on just this topic altogether. But as a whole, we have this 2300-day prophecy. We understand Ezekiel 4, 6. I have laid on you a day for a year and how we apply that to this 2300 day slash year prophecy, how it says 70 weeks are determined or cut off for your people, for your holy city. So out of the 2300 day prophecy or year prophecy, 70 weeks are going to be cut off for the Jewish nation. Literally amputated is the word. And so here we have one of many time charts we use. We have the 2300 days. We have these 70 weeks or 490 years determined for God's people. But then, of course, when would it start? We have to ask that question. And for that, we go to Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, the decree decree to rebuild Jerusalem we know was given in 457 BC. That stands undisputed. It's also there in Ezra 7, command given by Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so we have a starting date. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so here we have Messiah. Here we have some more math to do. Put those two together. We have 69 weeks. We know Messiah means the anointed one. And so Jesus was anointed at his baptism. We have further scripture for that too. Acts 10.38 says that when he went into the water to be baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so do we know when that was? Well, we do. Luke 3 verse 1 tells us, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and then it goes on to talk about Jesus' baptism baptism. And so we have these various pieces that a careful study of scripture, we can put together this chart with a starting date when Jesus will be baptized in 27 AD and so on. But again, did the wise man come to his baptism? No, they came to his birth. So again, I asked the question from reasoning from the scriptures and from prophecy, how would they have put together when to come to Bethlehem? This is a little verse obscure verse in the Old Testament that perhaps is a clue. Numbers chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, not talking about Jesus at all, but it says, from 30 years old, 
and upwards of that. But from 30 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. So for a priest to serve in the sanctuary, the most holy things, what age would they need to be? 30 years old. And at that point, they would be anointed, set apart for that special work. Now, Jesus came as a baby. He grew up, went through the various stages of development until finally, at 30 years of age, just like the priests of old, Jesus too was anointed through his baptism, set aside for a holy work. So it's very probable that these wise men would think to themselves, we know And we could unpack the 2300 days, knowing how long his ministry would be and so on. But we know when he's going to be anointed. We know where he's going to show up. We know that he's, there's a good chance he'll be 30 years old when he's anointed. Now, how do you know he wasn't 31 or 34? And, you know, they wouldn't have known that for sure. But they probably knew that it only made sense that at 30 this would take place. And so you do a little math and you back up a little bit and you can come to 4 B.C., If we take 27 and subtract 30 years, and you might say, well, that's not good math. Well, it's because there's no zero, and it makes things a little confusing. Because there's no zero, you have to add a one when going from B.C. to A.D., and, you know, just scribble it out on the piece of paper. It works. It comes together. So the wise men were studying the prophecies, unlike the church leaders of the day, and they were aware of the times, and they were looking for a Savior at the right time in the right place. Desire of Ages, page 60, says this. The travelers, talking about the wise men, beguiled the hours by repeating traditional sayings and prophetic utterances concerning the one they sought. I mean, this prophecy does say this, and it ties in with that, and it ties in with the age and so on. Do you think? I think it's very probable we need to keep going. We have to check it out. We can't just say, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. This is a big deal. I don't want to miss it. Let's just at least go. At every pause for rest, they searched the prophecies, and the conviction deepened that they were divinely guided. Does that same divine guidance want to take us through his word today? To give us understanding today of the events that we must take notice of today? And it was prophecy that guided these wise men to where he would be born, to when he would be born. And so we have prophecies concerning Jesus' birth, born in Bethlehem. We have verses for that, both in the Old Testament, its fulfillment in the New Testament. Baptism, minus 30 years, more or less gives us his his birth. And we have the, the verses there in Daniel, but also the fulfillment in the New Testament. We also have others, that he would be born of a virgin. And we have verses for those. Let's look at those. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. They knew that again long before. What are you looking for? A virgin that's just given birth. You think they got laughed and heckled at when they asked if they knew of any virgin in town who had just recently given birth and shall call his name Emmanuel? Well, Matthew 1, 18 bears it out. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, after they were engaged, if you will, before they came together, before they were married, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We also know that Jesus was of David's lineage. For that, we can go to Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise To David, a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. 
This is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Folks, this again is called prophecy. It's speaking of the days that are coming. This is Old Testament language of the time that Jesus would come. And Revelation twenty-two sixteen again confirms this. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So these are some of the testimonies that testify of his birth. But let's also not forget that there are countless other prophecies that show Jesus to be the Messiah. In fact, here is a very abbreviated list, only 12 on this list. Now, I believe there's at least 125 prophecies that prove that Jesus was the Messiah. 125. If I was in a car accident and somebody asked my wife to identify the body, I don't think she could come up with 125 characteristics. She'd be doing well to come up with like three or four. Well, there's an ugly mole on his neck right there. 125? But if you take just eight of these, suppose eight of the strongest of the 12 out of 125, some are even saying there's more like 320 some. Others are saying as many as 500. I don't know which number you want to take, but let's go extremely conservative and just take eight. I can count it on two hands. You know what the odds would be that they would all be fulfilled in one man? One in, you tell me. I couldn't even get Google to tell me what that number was. It just said, oh, you have a question about large numbers. Uh-huh. What is, how do I say this number? Didn't know. That's 30 zeros after it, by the way. So if we were to take all 125 or all 12, do you know what the odds would be that that would be fulfilled in one man randomly by chance? There's a word for that one. Impossible. Not possible. That this would just randomly happen, randomly occur in this one person. And so I believe it was Paul and others that were saying, look, this was the Messiah. I can show you here and here and here and here and here how he fulfills all of it. Show me another person. And as they studied the scriptures to see if it was true, they said, this is true. This is the Messiah. I do need to pay attention. John 5, verse 39, Jesus himself said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. It's not in a few remote places. It's throughout. It's all about Jesus Christ. So Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of the time had come. What time, if not the 2300-day prophecy? The time that could be calculated and formulated. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And so you have wise men from the East, these Gentiles who are studying the Old Testament scriptures, not even Jews, but they're studying the prophecies concerning Jesus. And they notice a star and they come in search to bear homage to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Luke chapter two, we read these very well-known words. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Who puts their baby in a manger? A feeding trough. This will be a sign. Again, more evidence, I believe, to those looking, those searching, those open, 
those that were responsive. Because they do respond in kind, don't they? Yet again, evidence that prophecy was being fulfilled. That the things written in God's word were true. I can't help but think of 1 Chronicles 12, 32, of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. What was special about the sons of Issachar? They understood the times. They knew what to do. If only the Jewish leaders would have been watching and praying and searching the scriptures like the sons of Issachar, like the Bereans, like the shepherds, like the wise men. But sadly, do you know how the church leaders of that day responded? They didn't. Desire of Ages, 62. The report of the angel's visit to the shepherds had been brought to Jerusalem, but the rabbis had treated it as unworthy of their notice. They themselves might have found Jesus and might have been ready to lead the Magi to his birthplace. But instead of this, the wise men came to call their attention to the birth of the Messiah, that they themselves might have found Jesus. But instead of this, the wise men came to call their attention to the birth of the Messiah and pride and envy closed the door against the light. We're not going to listen to shepherds. We're not going to listen to Gentiles. They don't know what we're talking about. Send them away. They might have found Jesus. But in their pride and in their envy, in their own self-sufficiency, Jesus came and they missed it. These learned teachers would not stoop to be instructed by those whom they termed heathen. It could not be, they said, that God had passed them by to communicate with ignorant shepherds and uncircumcised Gentiles. Hear, hear. And this is startling. They would not even go to Bethlehem. Having been there this past spring, it's like... You want to go to Fletcher and check it out? You want to go over here to Mills River and see? Let's just take a, a quick trip over to Brevard. That's what we're talking about here. They would not even go to Bethlehem to see whether these things were so. And they led the people to regard the interest in Jesus as a fanatical excitement. Don't listen to those fanatics. They don't know what they're talking about. And here began the rejection of Christ by the priests and rabbis. And from this point, their pride and stubbornness grew into a settled hatred for the Savior. Friends, this is a sad commentary of the church at the time of Jesus' birth. I think of Matthew 23, 37, when Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that thou killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee for your good. How often? Would I have gathered thy children together, even as hen gathered her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. So friends, Jesus came right on time to be the root and the branch of David, to be our Lord and our righteousness, to be the Messiah, the anointed one, God with us. And the church's response, fanaticism. And ultimately, what did they do? Again, prophecy tells us. It's not in the Gospels. Well, it's there too, but I'm reading from Psalm 22:16. They pierced my hands and my feet. Again, a prophecy that would be fulfilled. They spat in his face. They mocked him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. Again, more prophecy being fulfilled. Not in reverence, but in utter scorn, in disdain, in blatant disrespect. They said, hail the king of the Jews. <laughs> and they drove spikes into his hands and drove spikes into his feet. And while writhing in pain over the wretched and hateful human race who despised the crucified and crucified their savior, Jesus Christ, with the power to end it at any moment, rather than pronouncing judgment on them all. 
He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And it was this Jesus, it was this Messiah that Paul dedicated his life to proclaiming. It was the fulfillment of these countless, innumerable prophecies fulfilled in Jesus that Paul used to convince people of the gospel, of truth. Listen to to Paul's dedication. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that's exactly what we see in his life. Through the study of the scriptures, through the study of fulfilled Bible prophecy, Paul preached and people's lives were changed as they saw and studied and in awe realized that this man, Jesus, was no ordinary man, but he was the Messiah, the anointed one, and they received him as their Lord and as their Savior. Before Jesus coming as our Messiah, the Bible was fulfilling prophecy concerning the timing of his coming, the place of his coming, the form of his coming, but the church was asleep. The church was indifferent It was cold. It was a formal religion. Their hearts were full of pride. And in the face of direct testimony, they felt it unworthy of their notice. And they didn't even bother to travel the seven miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Couldn't be bothered. And now, right before Jesus' second coming, the Bible again is full of prophecies that are being fulfilled concerning the manner of his coming, the timing of his coming. The world is filled with signs of the end long ago predicted, many of them by Jesus himself when he was here. But again, I fear, church is asleep. Living on the knife edge of eternity, the church is indifferent. Again, my fear is that the church is cold and formal. And forget the church, that I'm asleep, that I'm indifferent, that I'm cold, that I'm formal, that I'm full of pride and complacency. And again, we've been given direct testimony. We have all the volumes. We have multiple Bibles at home collecting dust. We have more resources to study God's word at our disposal than ever before in human history. Is that honestly what's said? Well, let's go back and let's, let's call Pastor Wright and let's pull out the scrolls and the big rulers and, and figure out and do... No, I just pull up Google and do a search and bang, it's there. But just like they were unwilling to travel seven miles to Bethlehem, to see if these things spoken of were so. We are too unwilling to search the scriptures, to study the spirit of prophecy. We can't be bothered. We're too busy entertaining ourselves. We're too busy living a life of ease. We're too busy and engrossed with materialism. And again, I believe Jesus is weeping over us and saying, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how can I give thee up? Though that killest the prophets and stones them which are sent unto thee, oh, Jerusalem. Friends, what more can Jesus do? Whom else could be sent? What greater sacrifice could be offered? Jesus gave it all for our salvation. Yet sadly, too often we shrug it off. We yawn. But friends, the reality is we're living in exciting times. What would you have done when Jesus came the first time? You have the opportunity to answer that question as he's coming the second time. I believe we're living in times like never before. Prophecies are being fulfilled all around us. The world is groaning with evidence that we are living in the last moments of earth's history. But I challenge you, like the Bereans, is it the most important part of our day to study God's word daily, to find out if these things are so? Does Pastor Wright know what he's talking about? Does Amazing Facts know what they're talking about? Are these study guides true? Do we study them out for ourselves daily? And in the process, are we allowing God's word to change us. I think it's time to start putting down our remote and start picking up our our Bibles. To stop putting down our phones and speak more readily to the God of the universe that we can be changed. 
in the word, by the word, through the word, that the same Jesus that came in the form of a baby will be born again in my heart and your heart today. That our incomplacency will be replaced with urgency. That our pride will be replaced with humility. That our indifference will be replaced with purpose and with mission. And that our cravings for things will be again replaced with a craving to spend more time in the Word of God. A craving for holiness. A craving for God in everything we do. A craving for a deeper level of surrender. Because the reality is, when the fullness of time has come, Jesus is going to come again. For those that he has redeemed, for those that he has purchased through his blood, for those that have said, Lord, forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. For those who have said, Lord, I have come not to save, not that you save me in my sins, but that you will save me from my sins. He's come for those who have said, I want to claim you not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. And the promise in Galatians 4, 5 is that in Christ, we are redeemed from the curse of the law. That means we're redeemed from the penalties of the law, which I deserve. But Jesus took what I deserve that I might receive what he deserves. Remember that beautiful promise in 2 Corinthians 5, 21? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in Christ, we're redeemed. In Christ, we're forgiven. In Christ, we're empowered to live and bring glory to him. But best of all, we can claim adoption as his son and as his daughter with all the full prerogatives of being an heir of the king. That's incredible. That's grace. That's freely offered. And we'd be a fool to pay it no attention. I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes again to get his kids, I don't want to be indifferent I don't want to be filled with self or filled with pride or filled with self-sufficiency or envy or bitterness. I only want to be filled with Christ and Him crucified. I only want to be filled with every good and perfect gift which only comes from above that I may be able to say, Behold, this is my God whom I have waited for and He will save me. And that will be the best gift of all time. Dear Heavenly Father, that's our prayer today that by your eternal spirit, you will rule in our hearts alone, that you will be all sufficient to us, that you will be our God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our best friend, and our coming King. May that be the wish of our heart this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.